Welcome to a special DOD to AEC episode of Inspiring People and Places, where throughout the month of November, we are interviewing veterans across the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industries. As always, our goal is to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. But more importantly this month, our goal is to highlight career paths of those who served in our military and continue to make an impact after military service in our industry. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA, a service-disabled veteran-owned small business focused on advising public and private clients with strategy, planning, program management, and construction management support services. Allow me to introduce today's guest. All right. We are continuing our salute to service, or as we call it, the DOD to AEC, Department of Defense to Architect Engineering Construction, and we throw in development here and there, which is what today's guest is. Excited to welcome to the show, Joe Evangelisti. Joe, how are you, sir? Awesome, brother. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it and uh, look forward to it. Excited to dig in. You've got a storied history and a journey to where you are today, which includes everything from philanthropic efforts around veterans housing to flipping houses to construction. Let's take it back as far as you think is relevant as to where your career started. I I know that you grew up in a construction family, so maybe that's where it starts. So just take us back. Give us a little little bit of history of who Joe Evangelisti is and what the what the journey has been. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you nailed it. I mean, definitely it started at a very young age. You know, construction has been in my lifeblood since I was since I was like two years old. My, my, my parents were divorced at a very young age. And I've always kind of looked at that like almost like a superpower because I got to like travel back and forth. And I was always, you know, going. I just loved it. I enjoyed it for some weird reason. But the fun, the best part for me was I got to hang with my dad a lot. And my dad was the first entrepreneur of our family. He set out and set in and created a, a drywall company before I was born. And, you know, eventually that evolved into a general contracting company and he built houses and do additions and all that kind of cool stuff. But at a very young age, I got to experience, you know, what it looked like to own a company and work seven days a week and, you know, tra- travel and check on jobs and sweep jobs and eventually pick up a hammer and you know, so what I really enjoyed, not just spending the time with my father, but also seeing the process evolve, as I'm sure, you know, you get the same type of enjoyment. It's like when you start something and you turn it into something else, like whether it's a new kitchen or an addition or, you know, a hundred thousand square foot self-storage facility. Like I just like the concept of the evolution. And so, you know, I, I think I always knew I was going to eventually become an entrepreneur, but I still also had that kind of calling to be in the military. And so... I got super lucky, man. Like, I mean, we've, we've had this conversation, but like, you know, I got the, the ability to go into the U S Navy as a CB as a, in the construction battalions and actually do construction while serving my country. So I looked at it like, man, it's like the, the, the most awesome win-win opportunity. And really that's kind of like what kicked off my, my, my entrepreneurial journey is like, let me get that experience. Let me serve my country. Let me figure out the next steps. And then it kind of evolved. And for for some of our veterans, what were you doing in the CBs? How long did you serve? What kind of what yeah. kind of assignments did you do? Yeah, yeah, great question. I did all kinds of random stuff, but I spent about six years in the CBs. In that time frame, I was I had some really cool duty stations. My first real major assignment, which took me a little while to get to, was Camp David. I actually spent two years in Camp David, and I was between um, Bush and Clinton, so mm-hmm. I got to experience two different presidents. 
a lot of people don't know that that's a CB run base. I mean, it's essentially a standalone facility. And so you need people that know how to do plumbing and electric and building and construction and all that kind of good stuff. And so that was a super, super cool opportunity. Really, really enjoyed the heck out of that. And, you know, obviously the, the benefits of being there and getting a security clearance and all that are cool too. And, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately I got to experience 9-11 up there, which is a whole different story. I probably wow. can't talk about it on the podcast, but it was pretty, it was pretty intense. But then after that, you know, I really did what we consider like the normal CV routine. I went into battalion, which is, you know, where we deploy and, and, you know, you can pretty much go anywhere in the world from battalion, wherever they send you on different, different debts or, you know, whether it's, you know, you're at sea duty at that point. Right. So like, even though you're home seven months out of the year, you're away seven months out of the year, you can really, you're really deployable at any point. So got to go to some really cool places, spent time in Okinawa, spent time in Guam. And then my last uh, assignment was actually U.S. Central Command in 2003 while we were kind of invading Baghdad. My team was actually in charge of building out Tommy Franks's headshed. Like we hmm. built out the war room, we built out the, the skiff and all the comm centers for all the generals to basically run the war out of. And that was kind of my last major thing before I transitioned out. Awesome. And then as you were transitioning out, what was the next step a lot of people that are you know transitioning off active duty trying to figure out what their next chapter is you know yep. what were you thinking how did you end up making the decision yeah it was a pretty easy decision frankly you know a couple of my buddies had done it prior to me and you know going back to having that security clearance again it was like a it's like a golden ticket man so you know at that time you know, Halliburton's huge, all the defense contractors, huge, Raytheon's huge, and uh, ended up getting a ridiculous offer at the time. I thought it was ridiculous. I was 23, 24, <laughs> you know, to come work for Kellogg Brown and Root, which is a subsidiary of Halliburton. And uh, so I got contracted to be a project manager for the Defense Intelligence Agency, who at the time were under a huge delivery order contract. And they were just literally going through the building and renovating every floor of the building for decades. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, one of the reasons I, I attribute all of my success to my wife is I would probably still be working for a defense contractor if she hadn't come along and drug me out of Washington, D.C. and brought me back <laughs> to New Jersey. So, you know, one of the big reasons I'm back here, but not that that wouldn't have been a great life because I was doing well, but, you know, I would, I probably wouldn't have been an entrepreneur that I am today if I had stayed there and done that for the last 20 years. So talk to us about the entrepreneurial itch and how that all came about, because I think there's... There's a lot of people that probably could say that, right? They, they got comfortable enough. They didn't have any forcing function to, to look otherwise. Maybe they had it in the back of their head to try and bet on themselves. What was yeah. the process for how you, how you got started? Yeah. You know, and I'll kind of preface this too, BJ, with, you know, I, I do a lot of coaching and I talk to a lot of people that are considering entrepreneurship or like maybe want to make that transition or they feel stuck at their job and like, you know, I think there's way too much and it's starting to calm down now, obviously, with the economy starting to change and people starting to become more like, you know, attached to uh, that comfort, like you like you had mentioned. It's not for everybody, man. Like it's it's an extremely stressful thing. There's there's extreme upsides. There's extreme downsides. There's there's a lot of stress. There's a lot of anxiety. And, you know, it's not for everybody. And I think that there's too much of this like perpetuation of like, you ought to quit your job and go be an entrepreneur. Like, honestly, man, I. You know, I probably would have lived a pretty good life if my wife didn't drag me out of there. I'd still be in the same <laughs> spot and doing the same thing and making a lot of money. So I think there's pros and cons to it. But what made me want to do it was really just that idea that my whole life growing up, my dad was an entrepreneur. And I was like, man, I'm going to I'm going to be 
an entrepreneur. And, you know, if you asked me when I was 10, my, my goal in life was to take over my dad's general contracting company and run it. That's what I thought I would be doing when I was 30 or 35. Um, and uh, instead of that, when we got back to New Jersey, I was working for my dad. I was running his general contracting company, didn't own it yet. And we just started flipping houses. And, you know, we got caught. I say caught. Actually, I, I, we, t- we were taught a really good lesson because we jumped into it in 2007, right? Which, you know, arguably, if anybody's got a history book, might be one of the worst times since 1921 to jump into flipping real estate. And so, you know, I got out and took all of my savings and dropped it into the first three properties. And I bought them conventionally, the old school way, 25% down. And I had a couple partners and, you know, we got caught in that market shift where things started softening really hard at the end of 07 and then really like collapsed in 08. But, you know, we got stuck in this position where we're like, man, do we sell? Do we sell? Do we sell? And the prices kept declining until ultimately we're at the place where we're break even and we're like, man, what the hell do we do? And so we had to pivot. We had to course correct, as I say now. Back then, I didn't know what the heck I was talking about. But today, I reflect and I go, thank God I pivoted, right? Because what are your options? You know, and like at the time, the options were, I don't know, walk away and file bankruptcy and say, I can't afford this thing because I can't sell it. Or do I become a landlord and put a tenant in here and figure out a way to work it out with the bank and reposition the property, which is what we ended up doing. The downside to that is we weren't able to get our capital back because we had bought it traditionally, conventionally, put the money down. The bank said, yeah. We'll put you into a long-term loan, but we're not cashing out anything. We're not giving any of your money back. So all that savings that you just dumped into these properties, like that's ours. You know, that's your equity, right? And so right. the the good news about that is it forced me, you know, Ed Milet said this thing about COVID at the beginning, I, I, and it just keeps resonating with me. He said, most of us, when we're, when we're hit with some sort of, you know, adversity, what, whether it be COVID or whether it be this situation you know, it forces us to do the things that maybe we should be doing all along, right? And so when we get too comfortable, we get stuck in a rut. Well, you know, this adversity hit me. It was like, what are you going to do? And the only alternative I had was, man, I got to keep doing house. I'm I'm good at this real estate game. I'm just in a weird market. So what do I do? I got to find alternatives. I got to pivot. I started looking into private money, started making private money connections, started buying properties better because obviously the market's starting to collapse and we were chasing it down and we were finding good deals and you know, ultimately from 09 to 2013, we probably did somewhere between 40 and 50 deals and we did them with none of our own money out of our pocket. And we were able to pivot and correct because of that, you know, that, that pinch that we put ourselves in. And ultimately it's what helped us build the, you know, the, the single family, you know, flip business that we had for 12 years. Yeah. And then talk to me because I don't, I don't even know the story. I kind of know the, the highlights of it. Yeah. You're extremely successful at the residential flipping business and you pivoted to self-storage. Yep. Talk to us about what self-storage is, how you got into it, and then yep. you know, where, where that is right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, everyone asks us, why do we make that transition? And, and the reality of it is at the time, you know, four or five years ago, we were doing high volume in single family. You know, we did, I think, 88 houses in our last year, all up, all around South Jersey. And all I can say is we scaled chaos. You know, like a lot of people (laughs) will say to you, like, be careful when you're scaling because you have to scale, you know, smoothly and cautiously in how you built. We had just built a big ass scary machine that was just churning. And, you know, success is very, it's, it's very much about perspective, right? You know, and so like, yeah, we were making money. My tax return said I made money, but like we never had it, right? The cash was just in one day, out the next day. And like, 
So I wanted to find something that was a few things. I wanted to build a business from that point. By the way, I had 45 employees at that time. So I had a pretty big payroll, not huge. I mean, there's a lot of people have way bigger payrolls than that, but we had a big payroll to deal with. Uh, We had a lot of moving pieces and a lot of transaction and you can only control the controllables, right? And single family world five years ago is not what it was today, you know, where pretty much you're printing money and flipping houses and people are waiving contingencies. Like we would go flip a house and put 50 grand into it. And then the home inspection would come along and say, we want 20 grand worth of credits for, you know, things that aren't even relative, you know, and it'd be like, man, or they wouldn't get their mortgage in time or the appraisal came in, whatever. And so we would do our best job possible. And then we'd still at 11th hour somehow, we'd end up, you know, getting burned. Or, Sacrificing or our profit margin. margin would be sacrificed. Yeah. So, so I wanted something that was more scalable at a real level. I wanted something that was way, way more manageable with a smaller team. And I wanted something that was legacy wealth driven, meaning that we're actually buying and keeping large commercial assets, you know, because I had stacked up some single family houses along the way, but by and large, we were selling 99% of our inventory. And we weren't keeping a lot of long-term cash flow assets. And so I looked at self-storage and I said, man, we take build one of these deals, one of these deals and keep it. And it makes more cash flow than, than all of the single family houses I've stacked up in the last 12 years. We build one of these deals and it makes more profit than all of the houses I flip each year. You know, yeah. and I started saying to myself, man, like, okay. So the numbers are kind of scary when you first think about it. Like, man, I'm going to go from buying a $100,000 house to a $12 million construction loan. You know, how do I wrap my mind around that? So the transition wasn't easy, but once we got into it, we're now at a position where we're building class A self-storage, which is really kind of defined by a size, you know, 80,000 square foot net rentable or above. But when people ask, it's like, it's your cube smarts, it's your extra space, it's your public storage. When you think of a a REIT-owned self-storage, that's a class A. And that's the reason we only do class A, because we want to be in that space where the REITs are going to manage it for us. And I want to be a pure developer. You know, if I build something that's 20 or 30,000 square feet, that's an amazing cash flow play for a lot of folks. But I, I have to manage that. And I don't want to learn the management game. And I don't want to compete with them, you know, trying to fill up my facility. I'd rather have them on our side. So that's how we designed it from the beginning. We always build class A. We now are in about 15 sites around the country in five different states. We've scaled pretty fast, but again, doesn't come without its challenges, doesn't come without its opportunities, all that kind of good stuff. And we did all that with a team of 10 people, you know, so we were able to really, really crush down our overhead, really, really control the controllables and, you know, find really good sites and then find good people to partner with. That's great. So you, you've been around, you've had small business, you've had your Navy career, you've had different types of project teams, different size employees and staffs. Talk to us about a leadership lesson that has served you from the military in the construction development world. Yeah, that's a good one. So I'll tell you a lesson that I probably learned in the military that it didn't sink in until really more recently. And that is that we will not, we will not have the outcome. Like what does the military do really, really well? It, it disciplines us, right? It creates consistency. We wake up at the same time. We PT at the same time. We stand in line at the same time. We, we have a very consistent lifestyle, which really is discipline, right? And then you transition into the civilian world and what happens? There's 
chaos. No discipline, man. <laughs> right? Like it's all up to you to find discipline. You wonder why you're fat. You wonder why you're not happy. You wonder why you can't keep track of shit. like you don't have this the consistent discipline you had in the military, right? And like I know you feel that because you're still doing it, right? And so I know that you get a little taste of that, but man, when you're 20 years removed from the consistency, you're like, dude, I kind of kind of miss it. You know what I mean? So yeah. One of those things that I learned when we transitioned from what I would consider a kind of a bad culture, and I always preface this with, I didn't have bad people. I had great people. I created a terrible culture in the single family world because I thought I could just hire people to solve problems and just go sit in the corner and do something, right? right. I was a terrible leader. And so I started hiring coaches that would be like, dude, you want results? Look in the mirror, right? You want more money? Be a better father. Right. You want you want you want your more outcome for your people, lead your people, coach your people, care about your people, care about their results. And I and I started doing that and it was like, holy shit, these guys are getting really good outcomes. They're doing a really good job. They're closing really good deals. Like, wow, like I actually care and I actually want to see them perform. And you know, it's just a different style. And when you think back in the military. Like, how did you get, like Jocko talks about this a lot. If you guys listen to Jocko, it's awesome. But, you know, he's, he said true leadership is not telling people what to do or the word accountability, right? Like accountability is a terrible word in leadership because you can't force accountability, right? What you can do is be a good leader, show them what it takes to win, encourage them, mentor them, inspire them, help them, and then you get the results. Right. And he talks about these top tier operators. Like, you don't think you walk into a room full of SEALs and just dictate what they're supposed to do. Like, you're never going to get results out of it. Right. You got to find a way to mentor and coach and inspire and then make the ideas their ideas. So this is all stuff that I really learned in the last four or five years. And I've kind of taken that from the way I did it wrong in the last business to trying to be a better. And I'm not perfect, but I mean, try to get better at it every day. Well, and I, I think, you know, I'm going to be a little bit of your apologist here. I think because we come from the military that we do know that a lot of problems are delegate them out to those around us that sometimes when you're in the entrepreneurial game, you take for granted that in the military, we're being handed a product that's been trained, mm -hmm. right? Like our employees that come to us in the military, they, they speak the same common knowledge. They have the same, you know, disciplines they're kind of trained to be in that role. Yeah. When you're, when you're creating a small business or scaling a small business and we're kind of creating the SOPs on the fly mm -hmm. or, or we're not, we're just going by yeah. emotion and instinct and like trying to figure it out. We think, well, if I just bring people around me that are going to try and figure it out with me, we'll yeah. be successful. So throw yeah. people or throw money at the problem and the money is the people. And, yeah. and then you realize you scale chaos. So well, let's just take one microcosm of the military, right? How about yeah. boot camp? Right? What does boot camp do? It it knocks people down, builds them back up. It creates discipline. It indoctrinates them into your culture. Totally. It, it it brings them on board. It teaches them what we're all about. It teaches them the language, like you said, the comms. But then, what do we do in the real world? Mo a lot of people do, not all, but a lot of leaders will be like, I just need somebody to fix a problem. Put them on board. They're like, you're hired. Start next week. And then they're like, what do I do? Do all of it. Do all yeah. of it. Just do everything. And you're like, you're like, that's your culture, dude? Like, yep. like you're a complete show. And this is the results that you're getting. And so that's part of what I think the military, you know, does really well is show like consistency and organization and SOPs and design 
is really an important practice to the whole culture and the leadership. You can't expect people to know what you want if you're not doing it yourself. Totally. And, and for our audience, I mean, whether you're a private sector, public sector, one of, one of our ultimate goals of the DOD to AEC program or, or the salute to service in the month of November is like, recognize that there's this huge talent pool of veterans coming out of the military that bring a lot of that to the table. They've, mm-hmm. they've been filtered. They, they do have, you know, a little bit of a common operating or common operating language. They're disciplined. They're leaders. They're used to standard operating procedures. If you don't have them, they may be able to write them for you and help you get your system well oiled. And, and, you know, Joe and I are kind of bonding over the entrepreneurial spirit of like scaling chaos, but throw either of us into a, a, a organization where we're not the entrepreneur or visionary leading it and, and we're just trying to help somebody execute, we're going to bring a lot of those skill sets to the table. So, so I want to make sure we highlight that. Yeah. Well said. Inspiring People in Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE-verified, service-disabled, veteran-owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people in places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. Moving into some rapid-fire questions, you mentioned Jocko. Any favorite quotes that stand out to you? Oh, from Jocko? Not necessarily um, Jocko. Any any oh. favorite quotes in your in your arsenal? Oh man, I got I don't know. I got I got thousands of. I, I love you can only control what you can control, right? I think that's a huge one. I talk about this a lot, but where focus goes, energy flows. Like I think a lot of us spend too much time focusing on what if, negative, blah blah blah. Where that same exact energy could be used in the positive, and if people would just recognize that every problem is an opportunity. It's amazing what you start to unlock and and you don't spend days in depression and being mad at yourself, like just create an opportunity out of it. So focus goes, energy flows is a a, a big one. Yeah, I'm I'm going to leave it at those two. I think those are two of the the ones we live by. Favorite book or most gifted book? Oh, man, I gift a lot. So one of my one of my original favorites, believe it or not, is the four hour work week. And that's only because I did read that in 2007 when it came out. And it really changed the trajectory of how I built my businesses. And to this day, just thinking about delegating and creating process and automation and that type of thing. I love that kind of concept. I've also gifted a lot of, there's actually a book called Giftology, which I've gifted. I think I've given it to you. You gave it to me. And then uh, more recently, my buddy Sean Whalen wrote a book called How to Make Happen. And it's like a... 98 page book. I think he sold 25,000 copies of it so far. And it's, it's literally just like a roadmap uh, on, on how to create the life you want in 98 pages. So I give that book a lot. Awesome. I like it. If you could have dinner with anybody, three people mm-hmm. dead or alive, who would they be? Oh man. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at these questions only because you know why? I'm <laughs> terrible with names, right? So one of my coaches is Bobby Castro. He's an amazing, he's an amazing guy. He's a, he's a billionaire, but he, he came up through a really tough process and he ended up building and selling a company for a billion dollars. I love spending time with him. I've yet to have dinner with him yet. So I definitely would say he's, he'd be one of them. I mean, I, obviously everybody says Jesus. That would be pretty cool, right? I think so. Uh, yeah, I think that'd be pretty cool. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it at those two. All right. 
Talk to me about philanthropic stuff that you're doing outside. I know, I at least know the VBC, VBC Foundation, right? Yeah, VBC Giving Foundation. I'm really, really, really invested in that right now because we're doing some cool stuff. We just finished a, a 47 unit apartment complex. We already have 30, I think as of last week, 34 families living in that place. And it's a mix between market rate rents and subsidized, depending on where they're coming from. So the beauty of it is it's all vets that are living there. And it's a very cool, I got to hang out there about three or four weeks ago. I brought my daughter on a Sunday morning and we just kind of convened down in the break room and just talked to a bunch of old vets. And I mean, guys from like my age to like, I think the oldest guy is like 96 years old that lives in there. Wow. And you're talking wars, like spanning these crazy stories and I don't know, man. I just, I love hanging out with vets. I love taking care of vets. I love doing good things for vets. I think it's an extremely important part, as you know, of our, not only of our history, but the reason that we have the freedoms we have. And, you know, we just don't take care of vets the way we need to in this country. And, and, you know, I was in talking to them about this particular site. And one of the guys said, Joe, this, this place is like an oasis in a desert of opportunities. Like, Hmm. you know, so many vets are homeless. So many of them have addiction problems. So many of them have just just issues that, that that vets should have access to fixing and they don't they don't have enough programs people think the VA is out there you know and then by the way they're doing everything they can I'm not here to talk bad about the VA but they, they did super limited resources you know they just don't have the ability to handle the amount of vets and, and vets need a purpose so really my second biggest one is also veteran related is called aerial recovery and uh, they've kind of kind of hit the news lately because they really do three things well. They do one, they do vet veterans transitioning because they talk about this a lot. But one of the biggest things that happens, as you know, when people leave the military, it's, it's, it's a lonely road. You go from having dozens and dozens of people that you know that are your, your people, right? And then you're, you're a civilian and you're in the middle of nowhere. And so what vets really need is a purpose. And they actually say that special forces vets commit suicide at a rate three to four times as much as right, like the rest of us vets, whatever you want to call us, because we weren't special forces, right? But you know, these guys that have these super trainings and they've seen shit that you and I can't comprehend, and they've done, you know, these, these are the guys that need a purpose. These are these yeah. are advanced war machines that we've invested hundreds of thousands of dollars into making. You know, they're, they're killing machines, and and then you say, okay, well, you've retired, go out and you know live a life, right? And they need a purpose, man, and and so. A lot of them find addictions and problems and, and, they, and they don't have the resources to deal with it. So one of the things Ariel does is they do a, they call it Heal Our, Heal Our Heroes program. Well, they'll actually train them to go out and do disaster recovery missions. And then they'll bring them along these disaster recovery missions. And so they do Heal Our Heroes. They do aftermath of hurricanes and earthquakes. They just got back last month from the Moroccan earthquake that killed thousands of people. And they were out there doing relief work. These guys are boots on the ground almost immediately. Like when the hurricane's going through Florida, they're 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 going around the hurricane to come back up to follow, mm. right? And so the third thing that they do is human trafficking. They they stop, they try to stop human trafficking. And I just learned this a couple months ago by getting involved in this organization that the disaster recovery is actually a huge part of human trafficking. Right? Like when a hurricane goes through a poor country, or even, you know, it could even happen in Florida. A lot of these traffickers will go there and dress up as Red Cross workers and look for wow. children that are separated from their families and say, come with me. We'll take care of you. It's going to be okay. And 
that's where these aerial guys, and by the way, they're like 90% Green Berets. So these are trained killers. And they're out there doing humanitarian relief effort, but they're also there to protect and try to keep people from you know doing trafficking, which by the way, is the number two biggest illegal activity in the planet right now. If you guys haven't seen, what's that movie? DJ, you might know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They put me on the spot. We'll put it in the show notes. I'll think about it. It'll come to me. But so they work hand in hand with Operation Underground Railroad as well. They're very, they're like sister, sister companies and they take care of a lot of human trafficking and a lot of recovery efforts. And you said that the organization is Aerial Recovery? Aerial Recovery, A-E-R-I-A-L. And it's uh, it's run by a guy named Jeremy Locke and his wife, Brittany. Awesome people. Like I said, ex-Green Beret. Most of the guys that are there are ex-Special Forces. And then they will take well, take anybody who's done any type of service, whether it's, you know, Homeland Service or, you know, veteran service or first responders can go into this Heal Our Heroes program, hmm. actually get trained to go on these missions. And then they'll actually take them on the missions and they'll actually give them a purpose to go out there and support, you know, other people, which is, you know, let's, let's face it. That's what we built these guys for. Uh, right? That's what they live for. Man. They, they so, want a mission. Yeah. So it's like two birds of one stone, right? You're getting humanitarian effort and you're, you're feeding the, you know, you're giving the vets an opportunity to, uh, you know, to do something and get a purpose. That's awesome. We'll yeah. put all of that in the show notes. Last question. What do you want your legacy to be? What do you want on your tombstone? <laughs> I don't know about my tombstone, but you know, legacy is a big thing. Obviously our company is called legacy developers. And, you know, for us, like I always, I always, equate legacy because i think it's a very kind of overused term today but like i always equate legacy to you know something i taught somebody today who you know their great great grandchild is doing something with that knowledge and i i'm not getting any credit for it right they don't they don't they don't go back and go oh i learned this from joe evangelist 100 years ago. no it's like what we leave a lot of it is our knowledge right that we it's in our kids it's in the people we touch it's in the people we coach and mentor it's in the people that work for us you know being able to just you know, take whatever knowledge we have and, and instill that, that's going to make a difference, whether it's this generation, next generation, or the generation after that. I think that's, that's, that's my purpose. That's why I think, you know, I, w- I was put here. Awesome. You get to close us out. You're a veteran. You know that veterans are dealing with all kinds of stuff. You know that there's, there's nothing but opportunity in the engineering, construction, development worlds. Any closing remarks or inspiration for our veteran brothers and sisters that are contemplating their, their next chapter? Yeah, I mean, reach out. You know, I think that there's so many folks like, like BJ, like myself, you know, just go on LinkedIn and see who has a military history. I have never... You know, I feel like there's a lack of resources for people to find these things. But I also think that there's a ton of guys like you and I, guys and girls that you and I that have done this, that are willing to help and put people in the right situation. So, you know, I think that the the one thing you can't be is silent. I think you have to ask for help. You have to ask for resources, ask for connections, put yourself out there and and lead with value. And if you have some kind of value to bring, you're absolutely going to find a place uh, to land. And, And that's what it's all about. Awesome. Joe Evangelisti, thanks for everything you do for veterans and, and for your coaching, your inspiration. Where can people find you online? Um, you know, they can go to investwithlegacy.com is our, is our main website. And from there, there's all different variations. You know, we're doing storage deals. We're doing joint venture opportunities. I think, I think there's actually a charity tab on there to link to our charities. But of course, they can reach out to me and connect with me on the social media stuff from there too. Awesome. Joe, thanks so much for everything you do. And thanks for taking the time to be with us. Appreciate you, buddy. Cool, man. Thanks for having me on. Hey, everybody. 
If you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants and all your friends and family in the AEC space. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with us and learn about all of the projects and clients we're helping. Last but not least, we are hiring. We are always hiring. Do us a favor. Take a look at what jobs we have open. Contact us through our website or connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great rest of your week and a great weekend.